Hello to all our listeners, and welcome to this edition of Coffee and Conversation, Workplace Wisdom Unleashed. This is the 2020 Parallax Partnerships podcast that we intend to run as a series of conversations entertaining experienced senior business leaders and influencers in the leadership sphere over a cup of coffee, a bicky, and a chat. This month, Sarah met up with Mike Bushell, the creator and leader of an amazing community at Tyler Capital. This highly successful and innovative organisation have really embraced many of the next generation leadership principles and built a highly fulfilled and successful community, where they're also achieving spectacular results. So I hand over to Sarah and you can enjoy their conversation and learn more about Mike, his vision and the community that they have created at Tyler Capital. So welcome, Mike, to Coffee and Conversations. It's such a pleasure to finally be connecting with you because I know we were trying to do this before COVID, but we got derailed at the last minute, didn't we? It's a pleasure to be here with you. Thank you. We have some really interesting things to talk about today. And I know that because we've shared, well, a few conversations now, and I have been from day one fascinated by what you have been creating culturally at Tyler Capital and I really can't wait to get into that and unpack it a bit because I know that our listeners are going to love hearing about what you've done and how you've gone about doing that but in the first instance obviously it's good to get a little bit of context so I wondered if um, you could tell me a little bit about you and and in some ways Mike um, I'm smiling here because I remember our first conversation when we spoke on the phone and I think the first question you asked me was so who are you Sarah and um, I thought that was just such an excellent question so may I turn the tables and ask you the same thing Mike who are you and what do you do at Tyler? So thank you for the question. Um, I just recently finished reading a wonderful book called The Weirdest People in the World. And weird stands for Western Educated, Industrialized, Rich, and Democratic. And the book basically says those people described as such, they're weird because they're a remarkably small percentage of the population. And it's also weird because of the way that the Western mind, the almost Newtonian mind would process your question. I'm going to actually embrace some of the learnings from that weird book because some of it spoke to me personally and very profoundly. So who am I? It's easy to jump in and describe who I am professionally, but really who I am, uh, I'm a proud husband. I'm a very proud father of two amazing daughters. Um, I think I'm a really good friend to my friends. Um, I think that I am a part of a community. And these are the things that that really define me. That, that's really who I am. In the professional context, I happen to be um, a member of a, an amazing, an amazing community of talented men and women. We call ourselves a community. We don't call ourselves a team or staff or a family. It's a community, a community of civic-minded, caring individuals. If I want to answer it from a regulatory perspective, given that we are a heavily regulated organization, I'm the CEO of Tyler Capital. I would like to say who I am is that, who I think I am, perhaps I'm still just discovering it. 
Yes, indeed. And I think that's the beauty of the first conversation we had that I knew that we weren't just talking about job titles, etc. when we first connected. And I think that speaks volumes, actually, of who you are in your community. And we're going to be finding out a lot more about that. But I think there may also be people listening to this who are interested in what Tyler, Tyler Capital actually does. What's your marketplace? Can you tell us a little bit about that? Again, for a bit of context. Simply, we're traders. We trade financial instruments across the globe on a variety of different large international exchanges. So we trade the various, or what I would say, the usual suspects. We trade bonds and fixed income securities and metals and currencies and equity indices and a whole bunch of other things. So we're traders. But, but more than that, I would like to say, and I hope that we have an opportunity to unpack it, I think that whilst we are in the financial uh, services domain and we're traders, we're what's called proprietary traders. We have no clients. Um, we really are uh, a partnership of a number of people who work together to try to do something really beautiful. I would like to say, as much as we're traders, we're actually innovators and pioneers. And I'd like to talk a little bit about, hopefully this morning, what we mean by pioneers and innovators with respect to the kind of technology that we use to do this, how that kind of technology begets a, a unique kind of social organization, which begets a very different kind of organization that has a remarkably different association with society. So we're in the financial services space. We're a proprietary trading firm. Uh, we are 100% dedicated to um, artificial intelligence, machine learning in particular. And that's going to hopefully inform a lot of what we talk about because I think it's going to really necessitate a brand new kind of consciousness with respect to how people engage each other, let alone technology, technology let alone society. Well, that's really interesting for me to hear you talk about it in that way, because already I'm hearing you closely associated with what you do with how you do it, and that, that this is an integral system. You can't unpick the two. They are informing and supporting each other. So, yeah, let's talk much more about that. And in fact, I, I'd love people if they have a moment, and um, hopefully we'll put a link to this in the text associated with this podcast, your homepage, because I think it's one of the most engaging homepages I've read. And I say that because there are sentences in there that aren't just the usual stuff that gets trotted out by corporates. And, and, and you really do get a sense of the personality of your business and your community. And one of the, one of the quotes I'm going to feed back to you from your own homepage is, what we do is trade the markets. What's really cool is how we do this. So I'm going to, that's a really lovely open question for you to take it from there really, Mike, and explain to us that interrelationship between the technology and the culture. So we're, we were really inspired by the famous Simon Sinek, Puget Sound, TED Talk, the why, how, what. Whilst we trade, lots of people trade. And Tyler Capital has a rich history. It's been a market leader in our, in our domain for over 18 years. And it was around 2013 that our founder, our chairman, uh, my partner, James Tyler, he took stock of where the business had been at its 10 year anniversary, where it had been the previous 10 years and where 
he'd like to see it go in the next 10 years. And the whole entire reflection was called more. Now, it would be easy for people to think more from a financial perspective, but this became the beginning of a spiritual awakening for all of us, because it was what more can we achieve intellectually, personally, socially, spiritually, um, socially, and how could we do that? So whilst we trade, we thought we would love to actually be able to do something special with respect to technology, with respect to the amazing talent that's here in our community, and also usher in a level of care and regard with respect to what we do and society. So we decided to focus almost at that point squarely on artificial intelligence. We made a, a wholesale transformation in the business at that time. And really, it was not just about bringing in um, this embryonic, this is 2013, 2014, this embryonic technology. It really was about ushering in a new consciousness because we don't see that technology serving us. We see all of us manifest in it. That is to say, our technology is the ultimate expression of all of the competence and character in our community. We love triplets and we love alliteration. So you'll hear us often talk about consciousness, community. We like to talk about competence and character. And we made a, we made a really important distinction. And that distinction was competence and character, both of the community, the individuals that was manifest in our technology. Mm -hmm. And I think many organizations, they make, they make trade-offs. And one of the trade-offs that we really refused to make was we were not prepared to have in our community unsavory individuals. Many organizations, many businesses will say, Sarah, she is incredibly, incredibly um, talented. Her competence is extraordinarily rare, but she has a questionable character. She's not that nice. And we said, even though we had individuals that had remarkable competence, if they didn't have the character there wasn't room in our community. And equally, if we had really lovely people, but we knew that would in time be left behind by what we were trying to do technologically, they didn't have the domain experience, they didn't have the technical skills, we needed to say goodbye. We made a wholesale change in our consciousness within our community so that we could express all of that through and with, and in association you know, by our, our technology itself. So we really focus on how we do what we do, but we also focus on the why. There's a lot of talk in this day and age, and perhaps we'll get there, that we're going through what some authors are recently calling a purpose revolution. Um, I don't think this is new. I think this has been around for some time. I think that Emil Durkheim wrote about this in the 19th and 20th century. I think that many sociologists have written about it. Robert Putnam wrote about it in Bowling Alone. And we're really focused on what it means to be not only a company, but in particular, a community. A community that really can ask of you just as much as you can ask of it. So we really focus on what we do and how novel that it is. We really focus on um, how we do it. We think how we do it is actually more novel than what we do. And we really, really do spend a considerable amount of time asking the question, well, why are we doing this in the first place? And it is so much more 
than the profit motive. It's so much more than Weber's the Protestant work ethic and the spirit of capitalism. We really focus on what we like to refer to as mission and margin. So the first thing that blows me away is when I hear about you talking about um, spiritual awakening within the business. And that's really sounded like that was the seed of where everything evolved from there. And it's such a systemic and wholesale embracing approach, which, which takes in everything. As I said before, the technology, um, the individual competence and ability, as well as creating this sense of, of community within your organization. Can I just ask, did, did you have those, that contract, if you like, laid out in, in your minds at the beginning, or did it evolve as you kind of jumped into the deep end of the swimming pool and just started paddling about? Or were you very clear about your principles before you, gan, you, before you began sort of walking down the path of creating the culture that you have today? The social contract. We, we, <laughs> we, we definitely were mindful of the social contract and the responsibility. And really not so much a contract, but a covenant. Mm-hmm. And I'll explain what we mean by, by covenant. Mm. But I think that it would be inaccurate for us to declare that we had it largely all mapped out in our minds. I think that what we did share from day one and what really is bone deep in our DNA is the sense of togetherness. We talk about it's one of our values, togetherness. And we often spend time as a community gathering so we can really ensure that we are together. So together to ensure that we're together. And we talk often about the notion of a covenant, not a contract. We don't want people here because they are contractually bound. We want people to be here because they feel that this is a wonderful place where they can thrive. So what bound us in terms of our togetherness were shared values. And the values alignment is at the core of our community and the values alignment is duly reflected in our technology, especially when you're talking about machine learning and regulators and academics and polemicists and if you like leading scholars will often talk about the values alignment, ensuring that this runaway cognitive technology will align to not only what you want it to do, but remain committed or at least in the very least um, within a, a frame of what you want it to do so that reflects your values. So values alignment was really important to us. But I think it would equally be inaccurate to say that it was anything but passionate potential. I think that when my partner James and, and my very dear friend and partner, uh, Chris Don, and he's our chief technology officer, when we, when we collided, I think that Tyler Capital presented to all of us an opportunity to almost do everything that we wanted to do to build an environment where we wanted to work. We used to have people say to us, thank you for building this culture. And we would think that's a crazy thing to say. First off, build. There's no sense of building it. This is something that we have nourished together. But it was always odd to us because we always thought we were being remarkably selfish. This is the kind of place that we always wanted to work in. We just had radical latitude to actually enable it. So I think that it's not so much that we had this 
well-designed social covenant in mind. I think that we fundamentally believe, I remember listening to Robin Zander years ago talk about the power of potential. And we've said to everybody, don't come here and think that you have to live up to somebody's expectation. Come here and flourish so that you step into your own potential. So I think as a community, we're still just stepping into our potential of what we could be. Yeah, yeah, great. So I, as somebody who works with organizations, I've seen countless organizations do values exercises. And I'm sure many people listening to this will have been part of one of those at some point or another. Um, but there's a whole world of difference between doing a values exercise and making it live. And I see so many organizations struggling with that. Now, I think what you're saying is, and maybe you can just add a little bit more flesh so that people might get a more tangible sense of what they would have or what they do experience in a really tangible, practical way if they were in your organization. But it's that how did you live it and bring it alive? Can you give us some ideas, flavors about that? I'll try. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I think that I think that a lot of organizations and regrettably many of us here we're, we're we used to be the young ones at the table now we're the seasoned veterans so you've been around for a while and many of us have seen companies bring in consultants I love this um values consultants and they're going to do a values workshop and we always thought that was odd we thought that was odd because it, it almost suggested that we were porting in from another, or someone was going to posit for us a suite of potential values that we would decide if they reflected what we felt, framed what we wanted to be, or perhaps even suggested something that we didn't otherwise know. It felt artificial and it felt that it was really something that was imposed as opposed to something that was revealed, revealed from within. Our values are bone deep in our DNA. And, and I think it's also the difference between porting in values into a company and allowing values to be nourished in a community. How do we know, and you're absolutely right, we have many um, from uh, in our community who come from some large investment banks in the city. We won't name names, but they're the usual suspects. And, and some of our community came from one in particular and they tell the story of they went through a values exercise with their executive team and they put these large values totems in their foyer of the building and each totem had a had a value and a value proposition on it and they said one day they came in and, and a couple had been knocked over and they thought it was rather appropriate i'm not even sure we have them written down in any kind of explicit place because they're lived out loud every day. I'll give you an expression of it and how bone deep it is in, in our community. We talk about integrity and we have a frame called the right to participate. And, and we very much see participating in society, participating in our markets, as I, as I said earlier, a highly regulated um, organization, but also from a leadership perspective, being able to participate in somebody's life. We see that as a right. And that's a right that we want to nourish. It's a privilege. And so values are manifest from the shared values of the community. The right to participate says we wouldn't do anything in society, in our marketplace, nor in the lives of those in our community 
we wouldn't do anything that would jeopardize the privilege of being able to serve. We also fundamentally believe in, in servant leadership. I've sat at a number of executive tables and I always used to find it slightly odd when I would look around at my colleagues and it was though they had matriculated over the course of their career and that was their moment to extract maximum value rent privilege, financial reward from the efforts of others. And I used to think it's our moral responsibility given this station to more effectively serve them. And so we really also believe in servant leadership. So the right to participate in their lives, in our marketplaces, in our society, doing what we do in the manner that we do it, participating in the lives of those in our care. When I look out and I see our community, I see many families, I see many school fees that need to be paid for, mortgages that need to be paid, lives that depend on us doing the right thing and ensuring that we can preserve the right to participate, that no one denies us the right to participate because we were unsavory as a business. We applied our technology in, in an untoward, an unwarranted um, or an inhospitable manner, but also that we didn't have the care and regard of service to those in our organization. I don't think that somebody I don't think that somebody can come in and teach you that. I think if you don't have that, it doesn't matter if they tell you, it certainly won't be something that you can sustain. So I see this as our values are reflected every day because they are who we are. And we know that this is what's really fundamentally important. I, I laugh if I may go on a slight tangent, I laugh. We have, a, every Friday we have a thing called the Friday finale. So our week is bookend. We have a Monday morning coffee where we get everybody together and we, we talk and we may talk about the business, but invariably we try to talk about something inspirational, something that speaks to them as a community because we're just a bunch of men and women together sharing our lives. And it's bookend on Friday where we have a Friday finale. And during our Friday finale, we have a moment of appreciation. And years ago when we introduced it, you can probably guess I'm Canadian saying to my beautiful English colleagues, now we have over 12 different nationalities in our community, but, but my English colleagues would say, we're British. It's not what we do. And I'm like, you're a human being. That's what you should do. And to teach the art of appreciating, not just a colleague, but your good station in life. And we often say this, and I'll try to wrap this up because it may sound like a, 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 an almost Shakespearean diatribe or soliloquy you'll often hear business leaders say, our employees are our most valuable asset. And assets, as we know on a balance sheet, depreciate. And so we say, we appreciate, and we have moments of appreciation, so our most valuable asset doesn't degrade in time, it gets amplified and nourished over time. That's just wonderful. I'm just grinning from ear to ear. I love hearing you talk like this. It's just just so moving and so uplifting. But we haven't finished yet because I've got more questions for you. And you said a really important thing. You know, our values is who we are. You know, we don't have to try. It's, it's who we are. And I suspect that has come from you know the leadership but you live those and then and then it gives permission for everybody else to do the same. And I do want to come back to one really important point, because, again, this is something I see can derail really um, well-intentioned, well-meaning cultural 
work that has maybe got some great momentum behind it. And that is one person who pops up, who just isn't in sync or alignment with what you're trying to do. Now, can you tell me how you deal with that at Tyler Capital? What would I experience if that was me, for example? So I, I love the concept of, well, a few things. I love the concept when you say, hey, we're, we're really very, very close. First, we have a remarkable, um, what I would call diversity sort of quality to us. Um, this is a home that has many rooms and there's room for all. So there's lots of cognitive diversity. There's lots of political diversity. There's lots of social diversity. It's an incredibly rich, well, like a proper community. So I think the first thing is when people say, when you're really close, that's groupthink. And I say, you know, stop with the obvious statements. We call this entrainment that we are literally energy. So one of the things that we talk about is, there's a wonderful American economist, Robert Solo. He has a thing called the solar residual. And the solar residual effectively says, you have in a closed system, a, a fixed amount of energy. You can add to that energy by adding stock. But if you close out the system, you only have a fixed amount of energy. So all we have in our community is a fixed amount of energy. We can't get more unless we add to it. What we try not to do is to waste it because there's so much that's wasted. How many times have you had a conversation and you've said, ah, that was, that was a waste of energy. Or you had a meeting and you're like, ah, that just, that just drained me of energy. Or you had friction. We talk about in business removing friction. We often talk about removing transactional friction. What about associational or relational friction? And so what happens inside of our community? First, there's a, a fairly wide um, tolerance for diversity because everybody is consistent on the values. It is a remarkably rigorous intellectual environment, but my goodness, it's shockingly polite. It's shockingly regardful. People have deep, proud regard for each other. I'll give you an example and then I'll tell you how you'd be treated if you started to go beyond pale. I love it because I loathe it so much when companies say, let's just agree to disagree. <laughs> we just say, Sarah, I just disagree with you. And nobody feels affronted by that because the truth is I actually just disagree with you. And that's okay because we're trying to disagree based on, well, I'd like to say fact, but no one's in possession of full facts. But we're just being honest with each other. We have no tolerance for toxicity. Let me say that again. No tolerance for toxicity. There's a more inflammatory way of saying that. I, of course, I'll be professionally mindful and respectful to you. Um, we have a no certain rule. Um, so we have no tolerance for toxicity. But what's interesting is the community has no tolerance for toxicity. The community polices itself. They don't want high friction. They don't want to be drained. There's too much, there's too much mental, spiritual, intellectual, social energy to go into us solving the hard problems that we try to tackle every day than to go through 
having to deal with, well, toxic people. Does that mean we get everything right all the time? Goodness, no. Does that mean that we drop knives, stub toes, say the wrong thing? Of course. But forgiveness is also at the heart of what we believe, not indictment. We'd like to say we have a no-blame culture. We like to say that every piece of friction, every piece of incident, every element of frustration is an opportunity for us to unpack it, learn, and grow together. So forgiveness, if you can't forgive, there's no room for you here. Um, I think I think it's possible that I've never heard forgiveness used in a corporate environment. That just might be the first for me, um, but it doesn't surprise me. But I wonder if we could go on and talk about the kind of the way you organize yourself structurally. I know there's a quote on your website about being a unified team, which we've talked a lot about and and hating bureaucracy. And um, I know we've had conversations about, you know, sort of what are termed sort of next generation organizations moving away from hierarchy, moving away from bureaucracy. Can you describe how you sort of organize yourself structurally? Yes. So first, I think that, and this will be inflammatory. I personally think that a lot of companies, what's the old saying? Talk a good talk, but stumble when they walk. Yeah, I think so. So first, I'd, I'd like to unpack this a little bit. Um, first, I love it when people say, sir, we're, we're working to trust each other. We're, we're learning how to trust each other. And they say that in such a virtuous way. The fact of the matter is what you've told me is that you don't trust me. Trust me, yes. <laughs> so we start with trust. When you're a part of the community, we trust you. And it's categorical. And so once you allow yourself to trust somebody, you don't spend all of your time trying to circumscribe that relationship. We trust each other. And by definition, we like to refer to ourselves as flat, fluid, and flexible. Now, that's not just a saying. I'd like to give you two examples. So first, we don't subscribe to this corporate rule of thumb um, that which gets measured gets done. Uh, I'm sure you've heard that before. Absolutely. It, 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 it drives us crazy. That which gets measured gets done. We believe that which is important gets done. So it was over, it was a little over two years ago. I had asked one of my colleagues in preparation for our annual board meeting where we dropped our budget. I said I was pretty buried in preparation. And would they do one thing for, for me? Would they put together one slide that actually profiled all the different things that we did for our machine learning system? And this incredibly beautiful individual who's been with us for almost, well, 17 years, I think he was employee number, if not one, number two. Of course, he said, no, I'd love to. And I didn't have to say, this is part of your development, this is gonna be good for you. It was me just saying, honestly, you're just taking a whole lot of pressure off of me if you did this. And his name's David. And David put together one slide for me for this fabled board deck that we were assembling. And when I saw it, I was struck. And I asked David, would you first take all the lines out that were connecting all these things? Would you take all the lines out 
and then let's sit down and have a, have a conversation. And what he revealed in quite an explicit way was not only an almost unfathomable amount of output from our community for the previous 12 months, because it was literally unfathomable. Not one was a corporate objective, was a KPI, was something that the leadership team said we wanted to achieve. Not one. We set a direction. We often share and talk and reveal and explore, discover every day, all day long with our community. We trust them to understand what we would love to achieve together. And we create a tremendous amount of latitude for them to decide what's important and for them to focus. And when you do that, and it's powerful, you hear people often say, get smart people around you and get out of their way. Well, we don't get out of their way. But what we don't do is we don't erect impediments. We actually stay in what we refer to as close and continuous association with them, constantly serving them, constantly working with them, constantly explaining the business so that together, and the more that we know, well, we can build this beautiful thing. We are not operating a business. We're building something special that we can look back upon and be incredibly proud. I would say this, I say to the community every week, and every week they always say, but you say the same thing every week. I say, today's the first day of my tenure aspiration. I would love it if they look back on the next 10 years of their lives here with us and say, that was a magical moment for me. It was a very, very special moment where I got to do some really, really interesting things with some really, really spectacularly talented people. <sighs> Goodness me, if there were a million Tyler Capitals out there, the world would be an amazing place. So, Mike, I remember when we first met, we were talking about this, um, how you the fluidity in the business and the level of trust and, um, you know, autonomy people have, etc. And one of the key words that came out of that conversation was transparency. Now, when when I talk to certain organizations about transparency, it's something that really freaks people out. But of course, it's so important to enable people. Can you talk to us about how? you know, what you do around transparency at Tyler Capital and your attitude towards it. Hmm. So you can't be transparent if you don't trust the people that you associate with. Now, our industry is remarkably opaque. It's remarkably siloed. It's rem As my partner likes to say, it's remarkably siloed. It's remarkably secretive. And it tends to trade on remarkably talented superstars, individual superstars. We have no superstars, no singular superstar. I think every individual in our community, and of course I'm biased, but I say this and I want to assure you that I say this with the utmost of professional clarity. I happen to think we're the most talented group. I'm the old guy. This is the most talented group in our space. You can't be transparent if you don't trust. Let me evidence what we do. We have in our community what we call the impact zone. And we have a collection of over 26 different 42-inch screens, and they reveal 
every part of our business, every element of what makes us competitive, what makes us unique, how we differentiate the success and any failures. And it's so-called the impact zone because every individual in our community does something to contribute to that. We are one solitary social system focused on one singular techno technological expression. And so it's almost tantamount to watching the credits at the end of a movie. <laughs> and you see all those different grip, accountant, catering, location manager. And it's, it's just, there's literally, it's like hundreds. Everybody wants to sign their signature to that production. We call it the impact zone because we want everybody in our community to actually have their impact revealed so that they can be proud of what they're doing. Because when you walk into our office, every person is working on the same singular domain problem contributing to our singular social and technological system from where they stand in the organization. And many people would say, well, you can't possibly reveal all of that because what if they take that and they go somewhere else? So what they do is they try to lock them down, incarcerate them in these contracts. And we said, our job is to create an amazing environment where they actually want to be and therefore want to stay. So our impact zone is an example of our level of transparency. Second, we reveal everything we're doing about the business. We write extensively. We'll publish um, white papers on our industry. We'll publish papers on our strategy. We'll publish papers on what we're thinking. And we share them with them. They're educational. We'll do presentations. We, we, we do these annual, um, uh, they're called the mega conversations. We have things called Tyler Talks and Tyler Teaches. Everything's designed to create a very rich, transparent, a very rewarding environment. I'll also give you an example. In the last couple of years, we've been actively involved in a university, a leading university, for the purposes of at least honoring them. I won't declare who they are, but a leading university. And this leading university is a domain expert in the academic world in our space, algorithmic trading. And over the last 36 months, they've done a three-year 181 firm ethnographic study focused on algorithmic trading firms in the four principal trading hubs, global trading hubs, Chicago, New York, London, and Amsterdam. And of the 181 firms that they have profiled, they're actually doing a number of white paper academic submissions on Tyler Capital, not just because of the uniqueness by which we do what we do, because it is unique according to them. We think it's unique, we're proud but because the level of transparency that we provided them when they came. And when we talk about the right to participate and we talk about trust and we talk about transparency, they're all inextricably linked concepts. When we engage with our regulators, many people will look at perhaps some of, you know, your, 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 your professional colleagues wouldn't appreciate this, but many are fearful of the regulator. Many go, I don't want to tell the regulator anything. I'll only answer and very, very carefully, every question that they ask us. We see it is our duty to provide open, active, and continuous association with our regulator to ensure that we maintain our right to participate. 
We openly share our white papers. We openly share the academic papers. We openly participate with our regulators on a number of different panels to ensure that we're serving them as faithfully as possible out of the duty of care for our position in the marketplace. So our concept of transparency emanates from within the person. It's at the heart of our right to participate. And it is, it, it's essentially the connective tissue between what we believe and the trust with which we pursue it. Yeah, I mean, it's a couple of things that really stood out for me, how trust and transparency are inextricably linked. So you can't say you're creating a trusting environment on the one hand and then say, oh, but we can't be transparent on the other. I mean, the two just don't go together. Yeah. That, that I think, is a really important thing for people to hear and reflect on, um, because I definitely see a lot of uh, a desire to create trusting environments, but then the the squeamishness around the transparency piece. But the other bit I just noticed there was how you're applying exactly the same values and principles to your external stakeholders as you are doing internally, which is that kind of stick of rock thing. It's right through the middle of you, which, Absolutely. yeah. I'm, I'm thinking now about people listening to this podcast, Mike, and maybe they're feeling in, inspired or they're partway along the journey of trying to create a culture that, that, that moves in the kind of direction that you've created there at Tyler Capital. But what do you think is the most fundamental mistake that businesses make, even with the best of intentions of trying to move in this direction? How can I frame this? I think that there are many who are looking for an answer when the answer is actually within them. They're looking for an answer from the outside world when the answer is inside of them. I'll give you an example. Many will say, we need to read a business book. We need to get Bain or McKinsey or one of the big consulting firms in to help us understand how do we become more... more efficient without understanding the structural implications of that on your business, but the social implications on an individual and society. They'll get the business books. They'll go to the best business schools. They'll bring in the best business consultants and they'll ask them to help us with innovation without really understanding what that means in terms of the, well, the structural integrity of the business, the impact on the social fabric of the organization and the personal impact on the person, let alone the societal. And they will often say, help me understand how I make trade-offs because the typical trade-offs used to be, are you an efficient organization, low-cost provider, or are you an innovative? If I'm large and I've been around for a long time, I'm a utility, I need to be all about efficiency. More dynamic, younger organizations, I need to be really all about innovation, let alone not agile but adaptiveness. And I, 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 I think that there are so many cues to be found, not in business books, although goodness gracious, we certainly read them. We've gone to the schools. We've, we've paid our proverbial professional price. There's actually so much to be understood by looking at different social sciences. Economics used to be a social science, not an empirical science. Mm. Economics used to focus on books like, well, I mentioned Robert Putnam bowling alone. People would be well served not quoting Jim Collins anymore. People would be well served not talking about the Jack Welsh's, the fabled CEOs from GE. 
They do better studying Margaret Wheatley, Dana Zohar. They'd be better served understanding the cosmological soup of our life and understanding the second law of thermodynamics and the concept of energy and what it means that the business is nothing but a registrant. A business is nothing. Yuval Noah Harari, the great Israeli academic, says that companies are intersubjective concepts. They don't exist. Benedict Anderson talked about imagined communities. A business doesn't exist, save for what you and I agree on what it is. I think what people miss is that it's really down to you and I to decide what it is. And we need to spend more time looking inside of us as people and less time thinking of this collective as a company and serving the people and by default maybe having a reasonable chance of serving society because you've effectively positioned a serving organization. I think that we have our world and our academic studies and some of our, well, sources of inspiration. I think that we have them incarcerated in an industrial complex from the 20th century that is increasingly not fit for the 21st century. I love that turn of phrase, incarcerated within a 20th century model. That's wonderful. And I, I, I maybe I just want to finish this by perhaps inviting you to share with us how things have been going for your business during COVID, which has been a rough time, obviously, for many, many people, and particularly people in your sector, because I think it really does serve to demonstrate who you are. So maybe you could just to round this up, maybe tell us a little bit about that experience. COVID, heartbreaking. Heartbreaking. Many have suffered around the world. Many have suffered losses. The health cost, mums and dads and brothers and sisters and aunts and uncles, the health premium has been paid and it's been high. The economic premium. I always marveled when we would watch the government during here in the UK, the government would stand up at their five o'clock um, standing daily briefing and then they would talk about the lives that were lost. And they would remind us that behind each of those numbers are, well, a mom and a dad or an aunt and an uncle, a mother and a father or a brother and a sister. But they would never say, and to the men and women in the families whose livelihoods have been lost, whose businesses have been eviscerated, whose hope has been extinguished. And to all the young men and women who are just getting ready to either go to school or just leaving school, their hopes, their dreams, how they've been, if not put on hold, outright extinguished, let alone the potential downstream civic cost and what it means to be a community. COVID's been incredibly heartbreaking. I say that because we started out very early on reminding ourselves that this is a historic moment. The second week of March, during our Monday morning coffees, we started to talk about we will remember this moment because we'll remember who we were with when we were going through it because it's going to be, well, historic. And we reminded ourselves that we're a community. So we're going to be in this together. I love Jillian Tett's article on the FT. We may all be, um, we're all in this together, but we're not all in the same boat. Mercifully, mercifully, we're in the kind of business where we, on a comparative basis, should be almost ideally suited to weather this. It doesn't make it easier, 
but we are mercifully not dependent on air travel or a customer or like the, the West End or air travel or the leisure or the retail or the hospitality industry has been simply devastated. But what we decided to do was we wrote very early on what we called a mindfulness manifesto. And we tried to capture our values and our mindfulness manifesto by saying we wanted to inoculate against this pandemic, inoculate inconsiderateness, that we would actually support you and your families to the fullest extent that we could when you and your families may be in need. And so we not only articulated this in our mindfulness manifesto, we very quickly posited what we called the hammer and the dance, inspired by an article that we read um, early on in February. And we said, don't think this is going to end anytime soon. And as Camus wrote in The Plague, prepare for this to be around forever, just like the bubonic plague is. We wanted to frame this in the most responsible way. And the third thing that we did was we did a little talk and we called it PDLIF. P-D-L-I-F, please don't live in fear. We'll try to get through this together. And so we followed the government guidelines, of course. We did what many have done. We COVID um, positioned our, our organization. We're in a, again, blessedly in a very good position. Um, we could virtualize. We were virtual anyway, although we have a physical office. We had to do that because of business continuity from a, a regulator perspective. So we were able to send everybody home. But that duty of care extended all the way to the home. Although they were set up, we wanted to make sure that they were comfortable. We wanted to know, we wanted our community to know that they could stay there for as long as they want, that everybody was going to manage, as we called it, the COVID moment in their own way. And we're going to support the interpretation of how you were personally managing the COVID moment any way you wanted. So not only did we say you could stay at home, not only did we follow the government guidelines and we started over the summertime to introduce different waves of reentry into the office, we also wanted to destigmatize mental health. We often talk about it's okay to say you're going to rehabilitation if you have a bad knee that it's okay to say that you're going to take some time off because you have a collarbone that's been broken because you've been playing rugby on a Sunday. But God help you if you say that you're scared or you're dying of loneliness or you're depressed. And we wanted to destigmatize mental health. And so we openly talk about that as well as part of the COVID moment. And we did a number of things. Every week we sent our community something, whether it was flowers, whether it was vitamin D, whether it was brownies, we called them Tyler twists, Tyler touches. We wanted them to feel that our community didn't exist just when you showed up in the office, that our community and the regard for each other in the community, it's transcendent and it's enduring and it shouldn't evaporate when this pandemic subsides. It should be something that is enduring and something that is beautiful. So we've tried to do a number of things. We've been inspired by some really amazing people in different companies and our community, bless them, have been, I think, deeply, well, appreciative. Wow. I mean, that just is such a wholesale expression of your 
um, holistic and human and caring approach to the community. And I think that point that you make is the community is not just about when people turn up to the office. It is that whole person and it what happens beyond. And I think that is a such an important lesson uh, to embrace, I think, for organisations and would make a huge transformation in many instances. But we have come to the end of our hour and it's been a very generous and wonderful and uplifting hour. Wow, Mike, thank you so much for talking to us today as part of Coffee and Conversations. Thank you for your interest in what we're doing. Thank you for every time we have a chance to speak. It's always, I feel... Um, enriched. So thank you for sharing. But thank you for giving me the opportunity to tell the story of a collection of very special people. So I hope that I've been able to share our passion for them and their passion for each other. And thank you for sharing that passion with us. Thank you. Well, if ever there was an inspiring conversation about what can be created by seriously engaging with this next generation space, this was it. Our deep and grateful thanks to Mike for joining us in this conversation, and we look forward to the pleasure of your company again in the future. Until next time, to you and your families, stay well and stay safe. If you've enjoyed this episode of Coffee and Conversation Workplace Wisdom Unleashed, then please remember to subscribe to the podcast and share on your social media channels. Equally, if you would like to give us some feedback, suggest future guests, share your stories or find out more about leadership, team and organisational development, we would love to hear from you. Do contact us via our LinkedIn pages. These links can be found in the description associated with this episode. Ready to unleash your workplace wisdoms? Well, what are you waiting for? 